Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. My name is Ben Ehrenreich. I'm a novelist and a journalist, and I'm going to read a chapter from my novel, The Suitors. The Suitors is extremely loosely based on Homer's The Odyssey, but it focuses not on the Odysseus character, who is here named Payne, but on what he left behind, his wife, who in this is named Penny rather than Penelope, his child, and the suitors of the title. I'm going to read a very early chapter from the book, before those suitors appear, certainly before the child appears, which chronicles the very beginning of the romance between Penny and Payne. It's the second chapter of the novel, and it's called Starting Over, or Before the Collapse of the State, or Penny and Payne Competing Mythic Hypotheses, as to the origins thereof. Penny was born on the sidewalk, beautifully. If only you could have seen it, her mother's body splayed at angles oblique to the cracks in the cement, her white dress soaked red and writhing, red with blood and the reflected light of the neon tubes, sketching the word open, the word Michelob, the word cold, in the shop windows above her. Her cheeks the same dappled violet as the sweat-stained silk shirt of the man who stopped to help her, who rolled up his sleeves and stuck his hairy-knuckled hands between her legs, and who, she later learned, walked off with her pocketbook as payment, but not before handing screaming purple penny, joyous gift, into her mother's strengthless arms, where she cried a first shrill cry, that joined the honking taxi horns, the clicking heels, the screeches of birds, squirrels, rats, patrol cars, and other lower-level parasites, the faraway song of a wine-happy drunk, her mother's broken breaths, a cry that was, if you will believe me, melodious and full of hope. Her father, like the man who would later sire for Penny a brat of her own, was nowhere to be found. Where was he? If it matters, he was 3,000 miles away in a dry drainage canal that fed off the Los Angeles River, where a multitude of ants trod a well-worn trail through his cranium, a thoroughfare first opened by a tire iron, perhaps over-hastily swung. But Penny would never learn this, nor would her mother. And how could they? There were no telephones then. There was no internet, no Morse code or ballpoint pens. Even feathers had not yet been invented. This was the immeasurable past, before words were spoken or thoughts thunk, before the seas receded and the earth was born. So much for patrimony. When Penny was six, her mother fell hard for a man whose pigmentation did not meet the local requirements, and she was run out of town by the pitchfork brigade. She was not heard from again, nor was he. Penny became a ward of the state. The other girls at school wore identical uniforms of pink miniskirts, lamb's wool twin sets, leg warmers, and patent leather loafers. But Penny had nothing but laceless state tennis shoes and gray coveralls stenciled in brown, state property size 4 to 16. The other little girls waited for her at recess and pelted her with stones. They brought little bento boxes of sashimi to school for lunch and chattered happily about their father's speedboats and their mother's lovers, clicking their chopsticks in the air. Penny brought state-loaned sandwiches made from stale bread ends, crusty cold-cut ends, and oily slabs of white government cheese. She picked her sandwich in pieces, rolled the pieces in her palm, and threw the resulting spheres at the other girls. 
When she found them alone, she pulled their hair, tore their twin sets, bloodied their noses, and crushed their dolls' plastic skulls. The boys were no better, so she threw dirt in their eyes and kicked them where it hurt. The other little girls hated Penny for many reasons, because she had no money and none of the many things necessary for girlhood, patent leather shoes, sashimi lunches, dolls that wet themselves, because she had no parents and no home, because they could and wanted to, but also because, despite it all, Penny was gorgeous, shiningly, glowingly, screamingly so. As misshapen as her figure may have been, as slouched her posture and crooked her teeth, still in muddied state coveralls, her green-green eyes black and sunken from blows and hunger and lack of sleep, her hair torn, a mess, her skin sullied with bruises and scabs, she still outshined them all, though they never would have admitted it, even to themselves. She was also, it need not be said, no dummy. So when the boys began to notice that she might be good for something other than beating and berating, at which time the other girl's cruelty reached a fever pitch, Penny saw in their panting, slack-jawed come-ons an outlet for her rage. She acceded to the advances of only those boys, and nearly all those boys, who were already claimed by girls that she despised. She went down on them in movie theaters, in locker rooms, behind the bleachers, at home in their boyish bedrooms beneath posters of sweat-slicked basketball players. To their shock and delight, she stripped before them and fucked them in the back seats of cars, in the cold beds of pickup trucks, on an old mattress in a gully in the woods. It would be naive to pretend that Penny was motivated solely by vengeance, for while she did make sure that every boy's girlfriend learned that she had had him, and did not let the little boys pull their pants back up without first humiliating them, teasing them about the size of their adolescent pricks, for coming so quickly and fucking so clumsily, comparing them unfavorably to their best friends or their brothers, it cannot be said that their eagerness to touch her, and even at times to please her, meant nothing to her, nor that she never once fooled herself into thinking, just for a few seconds of quick-breathed teenage rutting, that the desire she saw in their eyes was something deeper and more lasting, something she'd read about in books. But she recovered herself quickly, and ashamed of her delusions, ashamed of her pleasure and her need, sickened by their boyish smells, by the slug-like trails of semen they deposited on her neck, breasts, or thighs. She let her words dig into them all the deeper, planting, she hoped, seeds of self-loathing that might bloom throughout their lives. It's not that Penny felt nothing but hate, though hate was generally all that she let on, Pity at times crept like a rat into her heart, but she did all she could to chase it off, to plug all holes with steel wool, ground glass, and poison. When a boy, who in the end was just that, a helpless, naked boy, broke out in sobs beneath her rage, reduced in the wake of the act that would supposedly make a man of him, to a blubbering imp, pity nonetheless slithered forth, and on its bony back it sneaked affection." Penny could feel her arms reach out to pull the boy to her, could feel his tear-streaked cheeks warm against her breast, the heat of a different kind of need. But disgust, at his weakness and at hers, overcame her, and she stayed her wayward limbs, dressed and left in silence. Now when Payne, a tender sixteen, arrived at pretty Penny's school, 
He was not only a budding superstar athlete and a born leader, as the coaches put it. For within months, he was captaining the football, ice hockey, lacrosse, water polo, basketball, archery, sailing, riflery, debate, track, and torture and interrogation teams, but a premier coxman to boot. He made it his stated goal to tumble every last girl in the school, from the most perky-breasted cheerleader to Agatha Shrug, she of the scoliosis, the hairlip, and the squint. And he nearly succeeded. Every girl knew of his plan, knew he cared not a whit for them. They feigned disgust amongst their girlfriends, and swore they wouldn't dream of it, but one after another fell to his advances nonetheless. Except Penny, who had no girlfriends and no need to feign disgust. She saw in Payne's conquests a denatured, lobotomized parody of her own, and had little trouble resolving that he would be the one boy she would never touch. Payne, of course, gave it his all. He cornered her behind the gym one day, where she sat smoking, pulling the legs from a spider. Everyone says you're a freak, but I think you're really pretty. My parents don't get home till six, and we can drink their booze if you want to come over, he said. But this tried-and-true strategy went nowhere. She flicked her ash at him and walked away. Too wise for his age, Payne knew that cruelty is the only way in to certain well-guarded hearts, and changed his tactics to suit. He sat next to her on the bus, pulled her earphones from her ear, and hissed. You're such a dirty slut it makes me sick. There's no one as nasty as you. Just from sitting here I'm going to need to be hosed down later. But she smiled sweetly at him and got off at her stop in front of the state home for cast-off girls. He wrote her letters, kind, cruel, and crass. He shoved them through the slats in her locker door and lingered to watch her toss them to the floor, unread. When Penny passed him in the hallway, he'd grab a girl at random and shove his tongue down her throat. Penny didn't even look. He began to take all his conquests to the crabgrass lawn beneath Penny's barred window, high in the highest of the state-home stone towers, to mount them noisily in the early morning hours, letting their cries and his rise like burnt offerings to her bed. Penny dropped lipped cigarettes on his rising buttocks, emptied her chamber pot on the rutting pears. A stink and horrified the girls complained, but Payne insisted they finish, and finish loudly. Enjoy it! he'd grunt through gritted teeth. And word got round that Payne had changed, that he was weird, that he wasn't nice like he used to be. And girls, pretty girls, ugly girls, average girls, girls whom everyone wanted and girls whom no one so much as noticed, began shunning his advances, ignoring his leers and ill-crafted come-ons. Payne stopped sleeping. For the first time in his brief life, he'd encountered something he couldn't have, for the first time, he really wanted something. Every other girl had been a passing whim. He hadn't even seen them. On the football field, did he really want every yard he ran? He just kept moving. The crowd cheered and the yards passed beneath him. Well, Payne stopped moving. He fumbled every pass, missed every goal and every basket, stumbled at the starting line, sunk his sailboat, stuttered his rebuttals, lost his nerve at testicular electroshock. Pimples began to spout from pores that had never seen a blackhead. He began to wear the same soiled clothes day after day, and his hair hung heavy with grease. His varsity letters were stripped from his jacket. His friends beat him up. Teachers and guidance counselors clucked in disgust when he slumped past them in the halls. After school, 
he sat alone on the curb in the shadow of the state home's highest tower and drank can after can of warm national unity beer. In the mornings, Penny would sit at her window and watch him wake. Lying on a bed of crumpled cans, snails, gravel, and crabgrass, he would prop himself up on his elbows, clutch his temples, peel a slug from his neck, and look up at the tower, hoping to spot the ember of her cigarette glowing in her darkened room. After a month of such mornings, Penny woke herself up before dawn, tied sheet-end to sheet-end, squeezed through the bars and rappelled down the tower. She kicked a half-filled beer can at his head. "'What do you want?' she said. Payne wiped beer from his eyes and looked up at her. "'You. You can't have me. Go away.' He grabbed at her ankle as she turned to leave. "'Wait,' he said. "'Please.' "'I want you. Why?' I don't know. Bye, said Penny. She crossed the crabgrass lawn and shimmied up the sheets to her room. I wish I could end this story here. What a happy tale it might turn out to be. Penny and Payne suffering their hard-earned freedom, each off in the world alone. But the demands of narrative are cruel. How best to describe that strange, sick process by which Penny's heart was turned? Let's put it this way. Penny had made such stringent efforts to armor her heart, testing it again and again in the fires of carnality, that like iron that's been worked too long on the anvil, her defenses grew brittle and cracked. All of her efforts to kill her needs only caused them to bubble and expand. Suffice it to say that Payne's persistence paid. He brought a sleeping bag and left the beer behind. Penny would sit up nights at her window, watching Payne warm his hands over a campfire, while he below glued his gaze to the orange trail made by her cigarette as it moved from hand to mouth. Once she saw him bathing in a drainage ditch, and despite herself, couldn't look away. She soon found that in the morning she would walk from the cement slab of her bed to the window even before she lit the day's first cigarette. On cold mornings, Payne's sleeping bag was white with frost and Penny laughed as he cursed and danced to keep from freezing. One day, after about a month of this, she rose from bed and saw no sign of pain. To her horror, she was not only disappointed but concerned. She smoked three cigarettes, lighting each from the butt of the last before she spotted him, not in his usual place across the road, but directly beneath her, at the base of the tower. In a rage, she tied sheet-end to sheet-end, squeezed through the bars, and repelled swiftly down the tower. With index finger and thumb, she flicked her cigarette at Payne's frost-encrusted head. What? Penny demanded, her green eyes burning. Do you want? Payne shook the ice from his hair, rubbed at the burn on his forehead, and tried to smile. You, he said. Why? Do you know yet why? No. Penny turned to go, reaching for the sheet-end that hung above her head, but Payne grabbed her once again by the ankle. She pulled back a steel-toed boot to kick him in the head, but before she could, he spoke again. "'What do you want?' he asked. "'I don't want you,' she said. "'But what do you want?' No one had ever asked her this before. Penny bit her lip, confused. She searched her pockets for the cigarette she'd left upon the window-sill. Why do you care? Why, 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 said Payne. Just answer. She thought about it. She thought about kicking him again. And then she answered. 
I want to get out of here, she said. I want to leave this place. The state home? No. All of it. This. Here. Everything. All of it. Payne grinned. Let's go, he said. Where? Anywhere. What's different there? Everything. Do you believe that? Penny asked. Yes, let's go. Now. And so they went. Oh, teenage dreams of flight. Things were not, of course, different anywhere, or not in ways that mattered, so they put their faith in movement and got off Payne's motorcycle only to eat and sleep and shit. And in the rushing wind and the blur of asphalt that their lives became, Penny's arms around Payne's waist, something passed silently between them, up through the fleeing pavement, into Penny's clenched thighs, up through her spine, out her arms, into a place deep in Payne's gut, and out through his arms, onto the road again. This is not a love story. I'll say that again if you want. And it is certainly not that love story, the teen romance of Penny and Payne. But you can, I'm sure, imagine the wretched details, the gory depths that to their unending surprise they discovered for each other in themselves and coquettishly displayed each for the other. Enough of that for now. The bike broke down. The money ran out. And Penny and Payne were stranded far away, bound only to one another. They agreed to call this new place home. This is, of course, just one version of the tale, and not, perhaps, the likeliest. The others are endless, and all of them are true. Penny, don't you know, was not an orphan or an outcast, but a perfect little dream, a straight-A student beloved by teachers and peers alike, captain of the cheerleading squad, and she, in multi-lettered pain, everyone agreed were made for one another. They went steady freshman year and only got steadier as the years went by, king and queen of both junior and senior proms, royalty from the start. Payne worked afternoons and weekends at his old man's shop, and a month after graduation, they got hitched. Payne put a down payment on a split level with a three-acre lot a few towns over. They planted a sign on the lawn that said, Home. He raked the yard. She dusted the curio cabinet. They shopped from catalogs, the rest you can imagine. But really, Penny was all that I've described, and Payne an outcast too, the new kid in town, all black denim and hair slicked back, a switchblade in his pocket and a joint behind his ear. From the wrong side of the tracks, rebels to the core, they took on the jocks and the debs. Payne bested them playing chicken with a stolen Camaro, hot-wired by multi-skilled Penny in the field behind the school. He slashed a lacrosse star's pretty face in a knife fight at the drive-in and was sent away for eighteen months. When he got out, Penny was waiting at the gate in a torn leather skirt, and they together hopped a greyhound and got as far away as they knew how. When the bus driver at last kicked them off, they looked around and at each other, and the ditch they stood in they called home. And Penny was a bookish geek in knee socks, paying a quiet nerd with a backpack. They passed shy notes in calculus class, read Rambeau aloud together in French, dry-humped with the Smiths on the boombox when their parents thought they were off at college prep. And Payne was a punk rocker and a stoner and a gangsta, gothic letters tattooed on his neck. And Penny was a black-lipped goth and a chola and a jap, and they got drunk at a party, and the first time they did it, Payne knocked Penny up and her dad made them wed. And they fell instantly in love the first day of school right there in homeroom, and they never went to school at all, but grew up shipwrecked on an island and swam naked in a hidden cove they called home. And Payne was a Hasid, 
and Penny an Arab, and they loved against all odds. Penny's dad a grand wizard and Payne's a sharecropper, and they were indentured servants in neighboring households and saw each other only on market days until they escaped to a place they could call home. And they were brother and sister, and their love was unholy, and they ran away to where nobody knew, and that is the place they called home. And in at least one version, the simplest, and perhaps the loveliest, and most true to fact, Payne and Penny never met, and never found a home. But it's too late for that, already. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.